Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Trifecta Fitness. We're proud to be Clarksville's new Get Fit headquarters. Trifecta Fitness is a state-of-the-art spin and strength training studio. Our spin studio is truly one of a kind in this area, complete with 20 state-of-the-art live fitness bikes and an incredible sound system. Our strength training is done in small groups of six or fewer, and all of our strength and spin classes are scalable for every level of experience. Come see us in the heart of Clarksville, just behind MAPCO at the corner of Old Trenton Road and Wilma Rudolph Boulevard. Call us for more info at 931-542-6265 in October 2019, Arlington, Texas was chosen to be the home of a new national museum, unlike any other. The National Medal of Honor Museum will be a unique home of military history. The 100,000 square foot museum will house exhibits, archives, and artifacts relating to the 3,500 U.S. troops who have been awarded the medal, the nation's highest honor for valor in combat. The museum will have 31,000 square feet of galleries dedicated to U.S. troops who have received the award. The museum CEO, former Navy SEAL and NASA astronaut Chris Cassidy said the museum will focus on education as much as preservation. The building will have five areas dedicated to Medal of Honor winners from the Army, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force and Coast Guard. The main gallery will be located in a central plaza under a 25,000 square foot slab of steel which will appear to be suspended in midair. It will be supported by five pillars. Black Rifle Coffee is a corporate sponsor of the museum, as are the Dallas Cowboys. The museum's board also includes over a dozen major corporations and six Medal of Honor recipients, including David Bellavia, Patrick Brady, and Britt Slabinski. Army Staff Sergeant Bellavia was awarded the medal for clearing an entire house by himself on November 10, 2004, as a squad leader in support of Operation Phantom Fury in Fallujah, Iraq. He killed four enemy fighters and wounded a fifth in close quarters battle. Army Major General Brady flew and coordinated the evacuation of 51 seriously wounded men during a firefight in Vietnam in January 1968. Slabinski, a Navy SEAL chief and team leader, led a rescue team of SEALs during Operation Anaconda in Afghanistan in March 2002. Slabinski and his team flew to a mountaintop ambush site to rescue Petty Officer First Class Neil Roberts, who had fallen from the back of a helicopter. Slabinski led the team through almost constant combat against an entrenched Taliban force. Along with the board members, former presidents Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama serve as honorary directors. The museum is expected to open to the public in late 2024. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back. Fit Nation. We are a show founded by a veteran and hosted by two veterans and a military spouse. Our mission is to get people to tell their story to the world. If you're an author, share your tips with Ms. Fulton. If you're a musician or actor, our audience needs to know how they too can get into the business. Coaches, we love our coaches. Come on and share some of your tips with the Misfit Nation to help them become better versions of themselves. If you're a corporate leader, 
or an entrepreneur, come on and share how you did it and how hard you have fought for success. If you are a veteran, first responder, or Gold Star family, we would love to have you come on and just share your story with the Misfit Nation. We always have time for you. If you're feeling down, alone, or starting to see the darkness, stop. Think about those who are around you. You are not alone. You will be missed. If you feel like your problems will be a burden to those in your inner circle or are embarrassed, dial 988. If you are a veteran, take option one. We need you to keep pushing forward. Don't make a permanent solution to a temporary problem. If you're a new listener, welcome to the Misfit Nation. Be sure to subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast apps and also on our YouTube channel at the underscore Misfit Nation. Subscribe and click the bell to keep you up to date with our latest episodes and all of our news. You can also find us on Heroes Media Group and About Face Radio. Now, let's get to the show. A good one tonight, y'all. Our next guest is like a Swiss Army knife. I was on her show uh, three weeks ago, two weeks ago now. And I had a great time on her show and told her I had to have her on mine. She wears multiple hats. She's an author, public speaker, podcast host, artist, survivor. But ultimately, she's a woman who's transformed her trauma into resilience and strength. She also has rescue cats that keep her sane along with her husband. So without further ado, let's welcome Amanda Blackwood to the Misfit Nation. Welcome, Amanda. Hey, Rich. It's so good to see you again. It's great to see you, too. And uh, hopefully our my... Audio issues are working themselves out here as we're talking, so this is great. <laughs> so, Amanda, I gave a little blurb about your Swiss Army knife life and uh, all the things you do. I mean, you have you're going 80 different directions a day now and uh, doing great things. But tell the audience a little more about about you and how we got to where we are today. Well, when you introduce me as a survivor, a lot of people wonder immediately, well, what are you a survivor of? Well, there's a whole bunch of stuff, but namely, what I'm most uh, known for is being a survivor of human trafficking. And the reason that I'm known for this is because there's so few other survivors out there that are willing to talk about their own experiences because we have all of this huge amount of, of um, self-blame and shame that goes along with that. And there's also a lot of stigma. And when you're talking about human trafficking, it doesn't look like how it's portrayed in the media. So there's a lot of victims and survivors of human trafficking that don't even realize that this is what they've been through. Wow. And then that's got to be a shocking thing, especially for you having survived that, that uh, ordeal in life and meeting all others that have been going through basically the same stuff and not even knowing it. Right. I, I survived the last time at 31 years old. So already it doesn't look like how it's portrayed in the media. I was trafficked three different times in completely different circumstances. And I didn't know that any of those events could be considered human trafficking until 2018. I was 38 years old, seven years out of trafficking. And I went to an anti-trafficking conference where they defined it. And I started to think about it a little bit. And the more it started to play in my mind, the more I realized that what I'd been through was so much more than just domestic violence. But so many of us, that's, that's what we believe it is because we're not little children being kidnapped by total strangers and windowless vans. Wow. 
and there's so many other ways. I mean, I've seen it just in my travels in the military. I've seen trafficking on many continents. And, uh, seen it that way, and I didn't realize how bad it was right here at home until probably 2007, 16, 17, 18. Had a neighbor across the street who was trafficking girls from Arkansas through Tennessee into the life of being an interpretation and doing things for him and luring them in with different tricks or whatever to get them to think he's the best thing in the world. It was horrible wow. to watch it and get it reported, get it stopped. Wow. That's nuts. And so many people that are trafficked are trafficked right out of their own homes and stuff. So you don't have to actually leave uh, one country for another. You don't have to move even one state to another, even a town. It, you can be trafficked from your own home. Basically, the Department of Homeland Defense defines human trafficking as the use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain labor or sex acts from another person. So if you notice, there's no mention of money. So prostitution does not equal human trafficking and vice versa. And there's no mention of transportation. So human smuggling is a separate issue also. And these are all issues that all need to be addressed, but they are completely separate issues. And just because you're not transported from one place to another doesn't mean that you're not being trafficked. Right. And uh, now it's the case with you three different times. Uh, and I'm sure that left a, a big burn in your chest, a heart in your, hurt your heart, hurt your heart later uh, as you learned exactly that you were it, that, what, seven years after your last time. Now you're an advocate for, I guess, to, to let everyone know what it is and just try to help those who are in that situation. Right. I do that. I'm a public speaker. I've got my trauma recovery mentorship series that I've got going on. There's a bunch of different ways that we can help people. Yeah. And one of the biggest ways is when the show was coming on, it mentioned the 988 um, services. It's a pretty new service, so people that aren't familiar with it definitely need to get familiar with it. When you're talking about human trafficking, a lot of trafficking victims and survivors don't want to talk to police because they don't feel safe talking to police. If you dial 911, that's who you're going to get. But if you dial 988, you're more than likely going to be paired up with a psychologist or a counselor or a therapist and somebody with lived experience that can talk to you and help you through this stuff. For a lot of people, that's going to feel a lot more safe and a lot more comforting. These are people that are going to be able to understand and help in the situation rather than the police who in many areas don't have the proper training to be able to not further victimize somebody who has been trafficked by writing them a citation for prostitution. Right. It makes them have two things on their mind now. What's, the, the, what's going on in their lives? Right. Right. So what led you to, I guess, be the advocate? And also, I mean, you have 8,000 other things going on, but an author, did you always want to be an author even during this, during the chaos of life? And then after you got out of it, or was that just something that just happened after you finally realized what happened? I knew I always wanted to be a writer. I remember being a little kid sitting on the living room floor. I was probably about three years old, didn't know how to write my own name in crayons yet. And I remember making up stories and I couldn't figure out how to tell the story except to draw pictures. And I remember my mother telling me that someday I would be an artist. And while that is one of the things that I do, it's not my true passion and it never really was. I've always had this huge passion for writing. So when I was in the sixth grade, I had a retired Air Force colonel 
Chair Force Colonel, um, who was a, a fantastic guy. He was my sixth grade teacher. Uh, he fought in World War II and the Korean War. Just outstanding man. He was incredible. And he was very encouraging to me in my writing. And there was one day he wrote a half a sentence on the chalkboard. I jumped into my time machine and suddenly dot, dot, dot. And our assignment was over the next 20, 30 minutes, I don't remember how long, we were to write an entire paragraph of a story. And at the end of the 20 or 30 minutes, I had five pages and wasn't done yet. I was upset that I was having to turn this in because my story wasn't done. So Mr. Lee was his name. Mr. Lee told me, why don't you go ahead and turn it in? I'll grade what you've got and then I'll give it back to you so you can continue writing your story. Okay. So I relented and I gave it back, gave it to him. When he graded mine first so that I could continue. And when he gave it back in red ink in the margins, he said something along the lines of when you get done writing the story, please turn it in again for extra credit because I want to know what happens. And it was the first time anybody had really encouraged me in my writing. So I spent years and years and years writing. But it wasn't until 2018 that I came out with my first book. So I just published book number 13. So quick math. Um, I've done a lot since 2018. Yes. But so much of that is due to finally, it, that was the year that I discovered that I was a survivor of human trafficking and not just domestic violence. Being able to put a name to what it was that I went through was such a huge help to me. It helped me to wrap my brain around it and start to understand it and process it in a way that I hadn't yet. But in 2019, there was a vicious attack. The man that had trafficked me, who, by the way, was a police officer, oh, man. Um, he had taken a bunch of photos and videos of me during the rapes and molestations. And in 2019, I discovered that he had put all of this stuff on different pornography websites. When he did that, he also included my social media information and private personal information so that people could find me. I was recognized in a grocery store and it was devastating. But that was the day that I said, if people are going to keep finding me because of things that I never wanted to have happen, they should probably understand why. And that was when I started really speaking up. In 2020, I wrote my autobiography. It was uh, published on June 19th of 2021, which was my 10-year anniversary of freedom from trafficking. So I just reached year 12 just a couple of days ago, uh, yesterday, actually. And the month after that book came out is when I met the man that's now my husband. So learning, just understanding and learning what it was that I'd been through was such a catalyst for change for me that I know that there's so many other people that just understanding what their own trauma responses are can completely change their way, their, their entire life and in ways that can allow them to have these healthy, responsible, loving relationships that they think right now are completely impossible and will be for the rest of their lives. So many people go through trauma and they don't know what to do with it. Like you, like you said, there's so many that go through it and so many go through different types of trauma. Not all trauma is one size fits all. There's different trauma for everyone. Right. What they do in the moment usually isn't to help the trauma. It's to help them get out of that day or out of that minute. Trauma will be there until you get through it. And I think your, your work now is helping you to work through it and also giving a, a shining light to those who have not started to address what 
gone on in their lives to say, hey, Amanda was able to get out of this. Amanda is strong and she's living her best life now. Maybe I can too if I do the things that she did or maybe some of the things she did maybe help myself out. It's absolutely possible. You got to be willing to do the hard work and right. it's not easy, but it's worth it. It doesn't mean you have to rescue cats. You can get dogs too. That's <laughs> a <are> firm end. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. And kind of a funny story there. When I met my husband, I had four cats because I had determined I was going to be the crazy cat lady. I had no interest in ever getting married again. Uh, just I was happy being alone. I met my husband and he had two cats of his own and oh a little God. dog. And so between the two of us, we had a petting zoo. <laughs> so it was like Brady Bunch, but with pets. <laughs> yes, it very much was. <laughs> Hopefully one wasn't named Marsha. So. <laughs> Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. And they all get along. Wow. It's great. That's amazing. I have four dogs that uh, sometimes get along together. So it's amazing. <laughs> And you think they have a rough life since they live in air conditioning, destroy my couch, lay on it. So they should get along. <laughs> <laughs> they should, but I you know, sometimes that. there's a personality <laughs> clash. <laughs> in your speaking travels, uh, what's the biggest stage you've been on for uh, being a speaker on this subject? You know, when I went to that conference in 2018 and I was sitting in the audience, I knew that I wanted to be on that same stage and it was that very next year that I was on that same stage uh, wow. speaking to a couple thousand people. Typically, that's about average for the stages that I talk to. Um, I have been on stage in front of, I think it was six or 7,000 people, but that was not about human trafficking. It was actually the 1940s ball here in Colorado. <laughs> And I was cracking jokes, uh, talking about the pinup competition. So I have no problem being in public now. But the, in 2018, when I first discovered what human trafficking was, they opened up the floor to questions. And I was absolutely terrified. I was not a public speaker. I wanted nothing to do with public speaking, kind of like owning four cats because I didn't ever want to get married again. I had built the fences, you know. Right. <laughs> And when they opened up the floor to questions, I raised my hand and my question was going to be, how long does it take for somebody to have a normal life after going through something like that? I needed to know because I was asking for myself. I was still trying to figure out how to have a normal life. And what came out of my mouth instead when they handed me the microphone was, I'm a survivor and I need help. It was the first time I'd ever asked for real help from anybody, anywhere, ever. Wow. And it changed everything. But it was in that exact moment I said, I'm going to be on that stage next year. I need to tell my story. There's people here that are willing to listen, and I need to be heard. Definitely. And then the audience that big, uh, be able to reach one, teach one, would be awesome right there. So they, oh, I, I can understand what she's saying, just like you did when you were in the audience. You wanted to flip it and be the, now the person sharing your story so they know they also can heal. Yeah. Yeah. We'll go through the healing process. It's not, it's not just flipping a switch and you're healed. Right. You have to go through a process. Like you said, it's hard work and determination at that point to 
to go through the whole thing. Yeah. And it was hugely helpful being able to write about it too. When I wrote my book in 2020, I was able to let go of so much of the garbage that I had stored in me. And as soon as I was done with that, I finished, I, I started and finished the entire book in December of 2020. And immediately afterward, my therapist is like, I don't think there's much more that I can do to help you. So what are you going to do next for yourself? And I said, you know, I don't know. She said, why don't you try painting? I, said, I don't know how to paint. I've never painted. <laughs> It was terrible at watercolors. You want to look like I'm finger painting over here? Because that this is gonna this is not gonna go well. <laughs> so she sent somebody over with canvases and paintbrushes and acrylic paints. And within months, this piece right back here behind me was one of my first paintings. Wow. This this is a print of the original. The original is hanging in a home for human trafficking survivors in Chicago, Illinois. Um, the Chicago Tribune actually wrote a really nice article about uh, my my painting and my book and all that stuff. And it was really great, but that's not why I was painting. I realized through the process that I was painting because again, I still had these little pieces of garbage in me that I needed to get out. And the more that I got out of me through creative means like cooking, painting, writing through all of this stuff, the more I was able to let go of it all. Just recently, I released my cookbook, my first ever cookbook. And I'm so proud out of it. It's called surviving in the kitchen for exactly that reason. Surviving in the kitchen taught me how to survive while I was in the kitchen. Wow. That's outstanding. <laughs> What's your go-to dish when you're surviving in the kitchen? Oh my gosh. My favorite in the whole book <laughs> is called chicken Pierre. It's a stewed tomato and chicken recipe. I normally serve it with a rosemary garlic mashed potato and a prosciutto wrapped asparagus. But if you want something a little bit simpler in the breakfast part, there is a banana caramel Dutch baby. It just blows your mind and it's super easy to put together. See that so quickly throw those out there. The chicken Pierre sounds amazing, but uh, I can't wait to try that myself actually, but chicken, <laughs> one of the main meats I can still eat. So it's good. Chicken, <laughs> chicken turkey and beer are my, my foods right now. So <laughs> I think I'll stay on the poultry side. I'll, I'll do that there. <laughs> <laughs> Are you a self-taught self cook or did uh, you learn a lot of this from, uh, say, mom, dad or anyone growing up? I tell people all the time I learned how to cook out of self-defense. <laughs> self My mother hated cooking. <laughs> Oh, she wow. had a couple of dishes she was phenomenal at, and I will never be able to beat those recipes. Her homemade pizza crust, her homemade biscuits and gravy. Oh, my gosh. Other than that, awful. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Sorry, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> eh, she doesn't listen to these things anyway. She's fine. <laughs> She'll never know. <laughs> That's good to know. <laughs> So my, my a lot of the cooking for us, and uh, we'd watch him. And mom, though, she she was home first usually, and so she'd start all the, the main parts of the meal, and then he'd come home and do whatever he had to do. Mostly on the weekends is when he did the big meals, uh, getting meatballs. He made the homemade meatballs, start them early in the morning. Mm. Our, our dog would get the first test. We wouldn't. So our dog would get the first one, Mercury. We'd always get to test everything, and then we were allowed to have something. So if Mercury was happy with it, I guess we were good. So that's how I learned to make meatballs and all the Italian dishes. And that, that's where I stick with now. Nice. We actually had speaking, uh, meatballs tonight, meatball subs. See that? There you go. I need to go to your house. So. Mm. 
<laughs> start walking. <laughs> <laughs> Even when I'm not feeling good, I still love to cook. It makes me feel better. I, it's I, that creative outlet. I love being in the kitchen and creating. Sometimes it's just a, I guess, an escape to get in there and just do it. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. You have control over it. In so much of our lives, 90% of our life, we have zero control over any of it. But when we're in the kitchen, we can take back that little bit of control and control how much of each ingredient we put into the bowl. Right. And how hard we stir it. No, right. Exactly. How stiff do you want those egg whites? <laughs> I hate this dish. <laughs> If you ever made angry cookies, those are the best, man. You load so much chocolate in them. <laughs> My gosh. <laughs> Sinful, too. <laughs> well, and then you feel better because chocolate just releases all the dopamine in your brain. You know, you're going to feel better. You might as well cook a batch of cookies if you're upset about something. And doctors tell you it does help you, so you got to eat it. Yeah. yeah. They have that doctor in front of their name, so it has to be right. <laughs> yeah it's the same doctors that in the 1940s and 50s were telling you that smoking was good for you and it, while they were smoking in front of you <laughs> right <laughs> in the office so yeah <laughs> little did they know they didn't know they didn't know that surgeon general coming out <laughs> <laughs> thank god they were gone before they get sued i guess <laughs> <laughs> so you, you we've talked about you being uh advocate, a public speaker, an author, a cook, a cookbook author, mom of cats, but you also have two podcasts you've launched. So one, where do you have all the time for this? But two, what got you into podcasting? Well, I'm going to address that one first. I'm going to go backwards here. Okay. In 2020, when everything locked down, I had been a part of a weekly meeting group with other survivors of human trafficking. When everything locked down, they stopped all of this. We uh, stopped having our weekly get-togethers. It was, I wouldn't say like AA, but it was like this safe ground, this meeting place where we could go and not talk about our traumas, but still understand that everybody in the room knew what we had been through and didn't judge us for it. And I lost that sense of community. So I started my podcast in 2020 because I had no other outlet. I needed to continually be able to, to uh, talk about my day or vent about the DMV. You know, and I've got one episode where I was sitting in the parking lot of the DMV venting about how frustrating it was because of the lockdown, having to wait four months to get an appointment to be able to get my new car registered. It was nuts. And by new, I mean the cheapest car on the lot of a used car lot because my roommate had totaled my car. That's a long story. Oh, wow. I was having a rough year. Yeah. <laughs> so I started this podcast and the first season was just kind of me venting to nowhere and people started to pay attention. And it's like, well, you know, I'm going to have to give them something different, something better. So the second season I started reading my book and it's a 42 chapter, 350 page book. So I was going through it one chapter at a time. Now each week I would just release a new chapter on my podcast and then the, when I finished that, it's like, you know what? I need more. I still need this sense of connection, this sense of community. So I started interviewing other survivors who've been through unsurmountable odds and come out the other side like yourself. And I started connecting with people like you and with other survivors of trauma. 
my world changed again. I had this sense of community back and I no longer needed to sit in the room with the other survivors of trauma. I had my own community. I built it. I built it from the ground up. So I was really happy to have that. And it was earlier this year that I started the second podcast called Growth from Darkness, where I'm teaching people what the different trauma reactions are, what the long-term consequences are of not fighting back against them, and then how to fight back against them so they can improve the quality of their own life. Outstanding. And then the second, the first part of my question was the time portion, but you have now we can go to that, I guess. How do you find all the time to do all that was during a day? I do it full time. (laughs) 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 My husband has been incredibly supportive of me through all of this. Um, He just, I I told him, I said, you know, I could go get another job and I go get an office job and, and go get paid more for doing that. And he said, no, you're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. You're reaching people. You're helping people. You're pulling them out of these dark places keep doing what it is that you're doing. I couldn't be more proud of you if you made $200,000 a year. So this really is what I do full-time. I'm public speaking full-time. I am writing my books full-time. I am mentoring other people. I'm doing the podcast. And right now my podcast is so caught up that episodes that I'm now recording aren't even going to air for about a year. Wow. That's outstanding. That's amazing right there. (laughs) That, that's a hard time to remember what you did on that episode that long ago, but um, you'll, I'm sure you got it down pat, though. Oh, my gosh. I got a whole spreadsheet. Yeah. <laughs> I have to keep it all organized or I'm not going to remember anything. Three different notebooks I put stuff in, and sometimes I remember which one that episode's in. So I get it right sometimes. About 87% of the time I get it right. So. <laughs> so. Nice. I published one today, which I couldn't find any of my notes on it. I knew I wrote great notes on it, the show. And after I published it, then also I picked up my third notebook. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's what I was looking for. <laughs> that's what I wanted to write in that episode note. Good. But it's there now. <laughs> it's the art of the edit button. <laughs> it helps out a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I actually have to keep a solid spreadsheet of not just... Um, my own podcast and the different episodes that I have coming up and which which guests they are and what their story is. But I have to keep a separate tab on that uh, same spreadsheet to be able to list which podcasts that I'm going to be on. And I only keep track of the important ones. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Victory. <laughs> I'm important. <laughs> <laughs> So do you see yourself starting any more podcasts or just continue to develop the two you have and, of course, pumping out awesome books along the way? I do have a secret project going. Um, Nobody has asked me this question, so I I guess it was a secret only because nobody had asked. I have another podcast that I have started, um, and it is listing the different phobias, what the phobias are, and if I can find anybody in A-list celebrities or uh, politics that have this phobia. Wow. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> just kind of a fun thing. I just decided to throw together one day and recorded like five episodes all at once. It's like, oh, I could do this. <laughs> how many, oh, I mean, how many phobias are there? <laughs> this got to be Over this a thousand. It's probably a if I for, release uh, if I release one episode per week, I've got enough material to keep me going for years. Holy cow. 
that's outstanding. <laughs> what, made, <laughs> what made you uh, think of that one? Because I've had a couple of my own phobias and I wanted to understand them. It all goes all back to wanting to understand my own brain and how it works. So when I was, gosh, what was I? Nine, 10 years old. I was a skinny little bean pole of a kid. My mother and I got into a roller coaster at Knott's Berry Farm, California, that went forward and upside down and then backwards and upside down through the same loop before resting at the bottom. We're going forward and upside down. My shoulders were too narrow for the shoulder harness and I slid through. Oh, wow. I was about to die. My mother reached over and grabbed me by the hem of my T-shirt and pulled really hard to try and keep me in the ride. And as we went all the way forward, as soon as we started going backward, we both realized that we were going to have to go through this again. And we're screaming at them to stop the ride. And of course, they have no idea what we're saying. And we go back through it. And I remember trying to hook my toes onto the like the, where the sheet metal connected, right. pressing really, really hard and not really getting any kind of a grip and holding on for dear life to the vest, doing everything I could just to stay in this ride and still slipping between the shoulder harness. My mother still holding me in. We wow. finally got off and she had a migraine for the rest of the day. She was screaming and yelling at the guy. I have no idea what she said, but I'm pretty sure it's words I've never heard her say since. <laughs> we were both terrified. And since that day, I have been terrified of moving heights. Wow. I don't have an issue with walking up to the edge of a cliff and looking straight down a mountain because it's not moving. But if I can feel even the tiniest bit of a sway, like in a building that's really tall, like the Empire State Building, I can't do it. I couldn't go up to the top of the Eiffel Tower when I was there in Paris in 2012. I couldn't do it because I know this fear would absolutely overwhelm me. But I didn't realize that I had this fear until I was 18 years old and I went to uh, a rotating restaurant at the top of a hotel in Phoenix, Arizona. And the elevator shot through the roof of the hotel. And for just a few seconds, there was nothing but skyline everywhere as we continued shooting up. And then we went up into the restaurant. Most people would think this is super cool, right? Not me. <laughs> I hit the deck. I was oh, wow. blubbering and screaming into my hands. I was in absolute panic. They had to let me leave the restaurant through the service elevator. Oh, wow. that's an enclosed one, probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Wow. So you no flying. No, I'm cool with flying too. You fine with flying. Oh wow. I actually became a flight attendant. <laughs> I was a flight attendant for two years, three months, twenty-eight days, not that I was counting. Loved every minute of it. But it's completely different when you're flying as opposed to like slow moving heights, because the heights typically are not patterned. You know, flying is so similar to being in a car that you just you're just constantly at one rate of speed. It, there's no fluctuations and you're moving so fast. You're just hurtling. You don't even realize it. So, wow. yeah, I was fine with that. But I'm a terrible passenger now because I don't want to sit down. I'd much rather get up and pour the drinks. Do this. <laughs> there are. And see, when I did this. I had the last time I was trafficked, I was in Scotland. So I had learned how to use the Scottish accent really well. So when I was a flight attendant, I used to do all my announcements in a full Scottish accent just because it would get people to pay more attention. There are four clearly marked exits on board. 
porch doors and two overwing exits. Please take a moment to locate the exits nearest you. In some cases, it might be behind you. <laughs> so who's talking? <laughs> it was great. It was great. So I cannot tell you how many times as I was done with the announcement, I'd walk back through the plane and somebody asked me, oh, where are you from? Oh, I live in L.A. What? Is <laughs> <laughs> that like European L.A.? <laughs> wow. For, for a while, I also lived in Arkansas for a number of years when I was younger. And when I got back from Scotland, my accent was kind of confused between the two. Oh, I used wow. to call it my Arkenbrog. <laughs> redneck uh, Scottish accent. It's good. <laughs> Deep South. And <laughs> <laughs> to call the hogs. <laughs> my accent was so confused, even it didn't know where it was from. That's amazing. <laughs> Now you're, now you're in the Midwest, so hopefully you're picking up some uh, laid-back accents out there. Well, I spent so many years in Los Angeles kind of getting rid of any kind of accents that these days it's kind of difficult to pick one up on me. If you do spot any hint of an accent, nobody can ever place where it's from. <laughs> where are you from? Right here. Yep, everywhere. Where are you That's been uh, my dad was Air Force, so I was actually born in Germany, and we moved all over the place. I have moved 43 times in my life, and I'm hoping that if I ever move again, it will be the last time. Yeah, 43 is a big number to move. That's a lot of moving. Yeah, on average, once per year of my life. Wow. So you're good at it. <laughs> I am good at it. Doesn't mean it's something you should necessarily be good at. <laughs> I mean, it's not. It's never fun to move, and even moving just across town to this house, it was a, it was a lot of fun. I like to call it. Yeah, a lot of fun and stress. Yes. Don't break, <laughs> break that. Don't break that. I won't touch that. Don't touch that. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. The last time I moved was on Halloween Day, oh, moving wow. out of my old apartment to move into my husband's home. On Halloween, oh, I couldn't do that on Halloween. It's my favorite holiday. No, <laughs> <laughs> you know it used to be mine. I'm a little bit quiet these days. I guess I used to be a big extrovert, but going through everything that I've been through, I learned that it kind of altered that reality in my mind too, and it it turned me into an introvert. I'm much happier with a, a smaller audience. It's like public speaking. I'm perfectly fine being up there because all those people are separate from me. Right. But if I were to sit down in the crowd, I would have a panic attack. They're on top of you at that point, yeah. So you're at that yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> I understand that. I think a lot of people have that same feeling that they're better off. They're better off way in front of someone than on top of them speaking. It's much easier to do what we do on podcasts, but when you have that same feeling, so you're talking, you can be talking to thousands, you can be talking to two, but you feel more comfortable because you're alone in your cubicle here. Right. Right. I'm very, very happy um, in quiet spaces. Nice. I, I love having my alone time. And it's it's odd. I just recently became the uh, campaigns manager for a, an organization called Shamrock Way. Have you ever heard of Frank Shamrock? Yes. Okay. Frank yeah. is a very good friend of mine. Nice. I'm his campaigns manager for his charity now. And 
we had planned this weekend, I was going to be going out to Carlsbad, California and speaking at a, an event called From Battered to Brave. I helped to name the event. I was putting it all together. I was very excited about this. And because of some uh, unexpected circumstances and personal injuries, we've had to postpone the event. And I was heartbroken about it. But at the same time, I was hugely relieved. It's like, oh, because this place doesn't have a stage. I have to be in with the people. <laughs> This gives me a little bit more time to prepare for it now. I can take a seat back and just breathe. <laughs> get off me. Get off me. Get yeah, it's just give me space. Give me space. <laughs> Does Frank still the do jujitsu, or is he still uh, he just an advocate for it? So. He's definitely more an advocate these days, um, wanting to teach people self defense to be able to help themselves to overcome their own bad situations uh, he grew up in kind of an abusive household himself and he's witnessed a lot of um, hardships and really really tough times for other people so he wants to help fight back against that by being, getting involved in his community like he was in he was an incarcerated youth when he was younger himself and that's how he got involved with the shamrock family they had a shamrock boys club that was coming out and kind of ministering and helping these kids and he was one of the kids that they helped when he got out of juvie, the Shamrock family adopted him, which oh, is why Ken Shamrock is his adopted brother, and Frank took their name. Recently, he has just recently changed his name on Facebook to include his original last name of Juarez. So he's now Frank Juarez Shamrock on Facebook, and I'm really proud of him for doing this. He does still do the martial arts and he does still fight and he still does his routines and stuff, but that's more just to keep in physical shape and to make sure that when we do these events, he can personally teach people these methods of self-defense. So he's got the muscle memory, but if you don't keep working on that muscle memory, you're going to lose it. And he recognizes that. It's uh, outstanding. He'd be great on the show too. It's a great story. Uh, being resilient and getting through thanks to the Shamrock family and and then adopting him and to where he propelled to from there is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, he's a really amazing person. I met him when I was a flight attendant, honestly. Speaking <laughs> Scottish in the Scottish accent or no? <laughs> no, actually, we were both sitting in the San Francisco airport. Um, I had a three and a half hour layover waiting for my next flight. And he was just a guy who was having a really bad day that I wanted to cheer up. And while we were sitting there, we became friends and we became friendly and we kept in touch all these years. And beginning of this year, I told him that I wanted to paint his portrait. And he never gave me permission to paint the portrait, but he gave me permission to run his charity. <laughs> so, yeah, as well as everything else I'm doing, I actually do have another job, too. <laughs> I, I applaud you for everything you're doing. It, it's a lot of stuff going on. I think I have a lot of things going on, but I think you have gone up to me about four times. <laughs> <laughs> Amanda, this has been great chatting with you. How does someone get in contact with you to just hang out with you or just chat with you like we just did, or maybe get some help from you? That's really easy. Go to sh uh, shamrockway.org. Um, which is Frank's charity, or go to my website, which is growthfromdarkness.com or detailedpieces.com. I have two different websites. 
They can also send me an email, authoramandablackwood at gmail.com. I am always willing to help people to climb back out of that darkness because I've been there. I get it. And I know what it's like. Reach out if you need help. Of course, always remember that I'm not a therapist or counselor, but I am a mentor. I can help, but more than likely, I can help you to get the help you need. Outstanding. And I just put the website up there. It's on the scroll across the bottom. So you can screenshot it or just remember it's, it's not that hard. Growth from that darkness. Growthfromdarkness.com. Get a, Amanda to talk to you. Like she said, she's not a licensed uh, uh, social worker, she's a psychiatrist, but she has been there, done that, and she can mentor you through it. Amanda, if you can give any tips to those going through any kind of trauma right now, what would that be? I would say probably my biggest tip is to have faith in yourself. Now, we keep hearing it said over and over and over again, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I call bullshit on that, pardon my language. That's right. You're already strong enough. You've had to dig deep to be able to find that strength within you, but stop giving your abusers and your oppressors the credit for making you who you are. You made you who you are. You've got this. And when you need the help, there's people out here willing to help you. You don't even necessarily have to ask. Outstanding. Amanda, it's been great chatting with you again uh, this last 44 minutes and March at a few weeks ago. So it's like just a continuation of us laughing and talking together. It was, it was good to have you on my show this time. And if you ever want to come back on, you're, you're more than welcome to come on. I know you have, your time is limited because all the hours you don't have in a day. But <laughs> anytime you want to come back on, you're, you're more than welcome on the Misfit Nation. Awesome. Thank you. And, you know, I make time for the important things. And this is one of those important things. I love what you're doing. Thank you. Have a good night. Thanks, you too. Thanks for checking us out and being a part of the Misfit Nation. Don't forget to visit our website at themisfitnation.com. It's themisfitnation.com to catch up on all of our episodes and also to get some of that great Misfit Nation gear. As always, be humble, stay hungry, and keep hustling because we are.